love the excitement about our members meeting tonight. It's going to be a good meeting and an important meeting, as Jeremy already said. Uh, we're going to have the opportunity to put forth some names for deacons and elders. And so we are uh, asking that if at all possible, if you have any ability to be there, please be there tonight. Really important stuff going on. I know a lot of sickness is happening. Don't feel bad about that. If you're sick or if your family's sick, that's, that happens. But uh, look forward to seeing you all there tonight. Please join me in standing for the reading of God's Word, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. Starting in verse 32, and we will read all the way through chapter 5, verse 11. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Churches talk a lot about unity, something that churches seem to care a lot about.
this is probably one of the biggest complaints about churches when people visit them or when people leave them, rather, is the division and the disunity that they experience, the relational discord, the division between leaders and church members. Unity is of extreme importance for the body of Christ. Here in Acts chapter 4 and 5, we see the importance that God places upon spirit-created unity. Spirit-created unity. There is a difference, by the way, between the unity that we can manufacture, the unity that we can create, and the unity that the Spirit creates. There's a difference. We saw a couple of chapters ago, and this is a summary like we saw a couple of chapters ago at the end of chapter 2, when it said that those who believed were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to doctrine. And this doctrine united them. They were united around the truths of God's word. This was the source of their unity. And they were devoted to the fellowship. They were devoted to one another. They cared about doctrine. And they cared about each other. They were devoted to one another. In in a way that the world cannot understand. I, I, I have a lot of hopes for this message, but probably too many hopes. Honestly, you can't, you can't accomplish everything in one message. But as I've read through this passage over this week and thought about this, I desire for this church, this church here, to display a spirit-created unity. And I fear that so often in our society, we settle for man-created unity or false unity. My, my uh, ask, my challenge for all of you this morning is to look at your own hearts, to look at your own motivations to see if there is any way that you yourself oppose a spirit-created unity. And repent of that self-centered way of living. And give yourselves, commit yourselves, devote yourselves to God's word and to the body, to each other. We see the spirit-created unity here is the fruit of true conversion. Spirit-created unity is the fruit of true conversion. Look at it there in chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number. How many is that at this point in the, in the book of Acts? It's in the thousands. Thousands and thousands of people 
And they were keeping track of the full number. They knew. Why? Because of this public profession, this baptism that they had participated in. They were able to keep track of who was there and who belonged to the community of Christ. Now, the full number, think about that. The full number, thousands and thousands and thousands of people. The full number of them, of those who believed, were of one heart and soul. Imagine that. The full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Spirit created unity is the result of true conversion. The full number of those who believed. I think it's important for us to stop on that phrase, those who believed, and consider again what it was that they were believing. What what was the content, the nature of their belief? What we've seen Peter's messages so far here in the book of Acts. What do they focus on? What do these messages focus on? Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ. Therefore, repent and believe upon Jesus. Repent and identify with Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Jesus has been made by God to be both Lord and Christ. This was the content of the message. What does believing in Jesus as both Lord and Christ entail? It entails repentance, turning from your sin and self-orientation. Turning to Jesus as Lord and Christ. Remember, Christ is this word for the anointed one of God. The king that God has appointed. He is the king of everything. He is the true king. He is the real king. He is the one to whom all of our worship belongs. These men preached a gospel that required... Repentance and faith, obedience to the true king. That was what real conversion looks like. Repentance and faith regarding the Lord, the true Lord in Christ that God has appointed. I fear, again, that our churches have given up this preaching of the gospel by and large. And we have instead settled for merely getting people to attend our services. We have settled instead for filling pews with people and doing everything we can to keep people happy, to keep people there, to keep keep people encouraged as they go on in their false Conversions to utter destruction. The gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is a message of repentance, turning from sin, and this worship, this life orientation, this orientation of worship 
that is all about me and self, the American gospel. This is what we have settled for, I think, in our society. Instead of demanding that your life now be oriented around the Lord and Christ, we have settled for a God who now instead orients his life around mine. God now is oriented around me, my dreams, my wants, my goals, my marriage, my career, my life. God is here for me to orient himself around me, to give me the life that I so rightly deserve. Instead of a gospel of repentance and a reorientation of worship around the true Lord and Christ. We, we have churches full of people who have not changed life orientation. Their life is still all about them. Their life is still all about getting all that they want and keeping all that they have. This is not what the scripture teaches though. The scripture teaches instead that true conversion takes place when I come to the end of myself. My life orientation around me ceases, stops. And I now, instead of being oriented around myself, I now live my life oriented around Jesus. He is my life. That's what true conversion is. I go from being about myself and orienting life around myself to being oriented around Jesus. It's a, it's a reorientation of worship that takes place in a person's life. My life ceases and his life remains. My life ends and his life remains. This is what the scripture says, Galatians 2.20, you know this verse, Galatians 2.20, what does it say? I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. This is what Jesus said, didn't he? If you want to be my disciple, deny yourself. Die to yourself. Take up your cross, this, this cross, this instrument of death. Take up your cross and follow me. This is what he calls you to. This is what his desire is for you. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is conversion. And I fear that we have settled for something different than that in our churches. Do you notice in the preaching in Acts so far that hell has not been mentioned? Have you noticed that? 
The apostles don't say, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, or you're going to go to hell. You know why they don't say that? Because that's not the main central point of the gospel. It's not about escaping hell and getting into heaven. That's not the gospel. The gospel is about who is the rightful ruler and king of everything. Who is the king of my life? That's the gospel. Who's the ruler, the true ruler of everything? You you see, this gospel that focuses on hell, escaping hell, is still a self-centered gospel. I mean, if my life is all about me and oriented around my life, of course I don't want to go to hell. And if God has provided a way for me to escape this very painful scenario for me, I'll take it. Not so interested in worshiping him or orienting my life around him. Maybe I'll work that stuff out later. But, you know, the main thing is getting out of hell. No, that's not the gospel. And yet, so many people are afraid of hell. They have failed to see the heart of the gospel is about worship. Who are you worshiping? Who is worthy of your worship? I'm not going to do this every week, I promise. But I brought another book. I told my wife, I said, I'm not going to do this every week. But I, I, I do like books. I love books. I love giving away books. This book is called Conversion. I think it's an important book to read. Very small book, very thin book. Doesn't take a long, long time. Conversion. The Doctrine of Conversion. He, in his chapter, Michael Lawrence in his chapter entitled Disciples, Not Decisions. Disciples, Not Decisions. We're not here to get decisions, but here to make disciples. He says, what does a false convert look like? Often, it is someone who is excited about heaven, but bored by Christians and the local church. Someone who is thinking often about heaven and how awesome, how great heaven will be, whether God is there or not. A false convert is someone who likes Jesus, but didn't sign up for the rest of it. Obedience, holiness, discipleship, suffering, which is what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. I didn't sign up for that. I I like Jesus, but I didn't sign up for the rest of that. False convert is someone who can't tell the difference between obedience motivated by love and legalism. A false convert is someone who is bothered by other people's sins more than his or her own. A false convert is someone who holds grace cheap and his own comfort costly. But according to 1 John, he goes on to say, what does genuine Christianity look like? Genuine Christianity is someone, or genuine Christian is someone who loves fellow Christians and the local church because he or she loves God. Why would I not love God's people? I love God. A Christian is someone who desires fellowship with God and not just the ease in heaven. True Christian is someone who understands that following Jesus means discipleship. 
someone who obeys God out of love for God. Not because I have to. Because I love God. You remember when you were overwhelmed by the truth of the gospel? You remember when you realized who God is and what your sin is against God and you realized what Jesus Christ had done what you deserve, wrath, eternal wrath, but you realize what Jesus Christ had done. He had taken your wrath for you in your place and he had made a way for you to be reconciled to the God, the creator God, the maker of everything. And he presented his son as your king and you realized that and you submitted to him gladly. He owns my life. I'm glad he does because on my own, I was heading towards hell and destruction and despair. Why would he love me? I don't deserve to be loved. A Christian is someone who is eager to confess and turn away from his or her own sin. A true Christian holds grace costly and his own desires cheap. First Thessalonians, this great passage, chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. Paul says the Thessalonians received the gospel with great effectiveness. Why? Because they turned from worshiping idols to serve the living God and to wait for the return of Jesus from heaven. This is true conversion. And this true conversion produces unity. You you see it, don't you? If our worship is not self, if our worship has been reoriented through true conversion, our worship has been reoriented around Jesus, our King and God, the God we love. If If our lives have been reoriented around Him and we're all oriented around Him, what does that produce? It produces unity in the body. We're of one heart and soul. Why? Because it's all about Him. Where does disunity come in then? Disunity comes in when we turn from that, that desire, that orientation, that orientation of worship and life around Jesus and it becomes about us. It becomes about what am I getting? What are you not giving me? Listen, we don't need anything from each other because we have everything we need in Jesus. He's given us everything. I challenge you to look at the discontentment that's in your heart, the discontentment with life, the discontentment with marriage, the discontentment with church, the discontentment with career, the discontentment that you find in your life. Any area where there is discontentment, it is a failure to be looking at Jesus and orienting your life around Jesus because he has given you everything. He's not withheld anything from you. Nothing of true importance And that reality comes into play here in our passage. These early believers had oriented their life around Jesus so much so that their personal possessions became nothing to them. I mean, think of that. Their personal possessions, their material possessions and their money became nothing They had a bigger view of the kingdom than they did their personal possessions. They were of one heart and one soul. Look at it there in verse number 32. 
They were of one heart and one soul. And no one said, not even one, not even one said, verse 32, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Is that the opposite of the American dream or what? Is that the opposite of the American gospel or what? I mean, incredible, staggering. No one, not even one of the full number said that anything that belonged to themselves was their own. But they had everything in common. Again, this is not forced socialism. Okay? This is not state-enforced socialism. This is a heart. These are hearts that have been changed, that have been reoriented around King Jesus and his kingdom. And so much so that their love of their possessions went away. That even their ownership of their possessions went away. Nothing. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. What a radical Amazing transformation had taken place in their hearts and lives. Their love of possessions had gone away. Luke chapter 12 is a wonderful passage. I won't have you turn there. Luke chapter 12 is a wonderful parallel passage. I've quoted it several times throughout this series in the book of Acts. It's, it's incredible how much they're parallel right? It's the same author who's writing. Luke wrote Luke and Luke wrote Acts and he seems to care a lot about how you view your possessions. This is Luke chapter 12. What does he say? He says, fear not little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give to you the kingdom. And then what does he say after that? Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Give it away because it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Why do you need some land and some houses for? You don't need those things. You have the kingdom and a father who wants to give you everything. It's incredible. Look at the effect of this unity. They had everything in common. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony. I hope this whets your taste buds for what God wants to do in his church. Verse 33, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace, great favor was upon them all. Why? Because there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Great power in the proclamation of the gospel. Great grace and favor upon them all. This is a church we want to be a part of. This is a church that we want to see come to fruition. Right? We want to see power in the proclamation of the gospel. We want to see great grace upon us all. Favor as we share together in life. We share together even our own selves. Everything we have. This is the unity that God wants for his people. That God puts a high priority on for his people. And, and here in this text, we are, are given an example an, a specific example of what this looks like, and it's a man named Joseph. Look at it there in verse number 36. In this way, or thus, Joseph, you might know him by the name Barnabas. The apostles called him Barnabas. So we have an introduction here of, of a man who's going to become a main character in the book of Acts. 
Joseph, who is also called by the apostles. He was known by the apostles and called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement or son of consolation. A Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas is an example of this type of sacrificial, self-sacrificing unity. Barnabas did not count his possessions as his own, but sold what he had, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas had had a transformation, a spirit-created, a spirit-empowered transformation. And it manifested itself in his care for others. We just read in our catechism, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Right? These two go together, don't they? When my life is oriented, my worship is oriented around God, my love belongs to him. What's that going to create? What's that going to do? My love for others flows out of my love for God. Have you, ever, have you ever found that it's hard for you to love other people? Oh, it's hard to love other people, isn't it? But what is the remedy to that? To try harder. No. I'm going to try really, really hard to love other people. No, what, what you need is to get your focus again back on the goodness and the beauty and the glory of God. You need to love Him. And this will then begin to impact the way you love others. It may be even that that you don't love other people and your whole life is all about you. It may be very possibly that you need true conversion, a repentance and a turn from self and a reorientation of worship and life around God, around Jesus, his King. This is the answer for unity. Barnabas had experienced the gospel transformation. He had experienced the power of true conversion. He knew what it was to be reoriented around God and around King Jesus so much so that he didn't count what he had as his own, but he gave freely to others. So much so that he was known by the apostles as the son of encouragement, the son of consolation. Wow. He wasn't looking for that recognition, by the way. It came because he just gave of himself freely. What a wonderful example. But why does the text here give us this example? Because this example is meant to serve as a contrast to the character, the characters we're about to meet. True unity is produced by true conversion. Spirit-created unity is the fruit of true conversion. But opposition to that unity is a matter of serious sin. And that's what we see as we go to chapter 5. This is one of those places where chapter divisions don't help us very much because this is the same section. Barnabas is the positive example of what, what a heart converted looks like. And now we have the contrasting picture found in Ananias You see it there, chapter 5. But a man, so we have Barnabas, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property 
And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. This is such a familiar story. We all know of Ananias and Sapphira, don't we? But have we taken time recently to really examine and consider what is it that they did? What was the nature of their sin? What was it that was so grievous in the sight of God Well, in a church experiencing the type of unity we see here in chapter 4, opposition to that unity is a matter of serious, serious sin. We see, first of all, that Ananias did what he did with the knowledge of his wife. Later on in Peter's questioning of the wife, he, he actually says, why did you agree? Why have you agreed together? So this, this is a contrast to the unity, the unity of the church. Now they are unified, agreeing together in opposing the unity of the church. Here we see opposition to the mission of Jesus Christ, to the gospel, but the, the opposition is coming from within the church. It's coming from within the number of those who've professed faith in Christ. Any disunity, any disunity caused in the church is a matter of serious sin. Ananias and Sapphira experienced the seriousness as immediately they breathe their last. I said this is a familiar passage, and it is. How, how many of us have read this and gone, whoa, <laughs> that's a little severe, don't you think? It's a little harsh. Do you remember, do you remember the story of Achan in Joshua 7? I think this passage here is actually a a parallel to Joshua 7 in the story of Achan. Achan was one of the men of Israel that went into Jericho, and God had said when they took Jericho that they were not to touch or take anything. Everything in Jericho, all the spoils were to be dedicated to the Lord. And after the victory of Jericho, the men of Israel went up against another town, a smaller town, named I, it's not A-I, it's I, just so you know. But they went up against I and they lost. They lost. And Joshua comes back saying, 
Well, what's the deal? God, you promised us victory. And this, this town was nothing compared to Jericho. I thought, I thought we were going to be victorious. And God says, there's sin in the camp. I'm angry with Israel because of the sin that's in the camp. And you know the story. They go through by lot. They try to figure out who it is that has brought this reproach upon Israel. And the lot finally lands on a man named Achan. They question Achan and Achan says, sure enough. When I was going through Jericho, I found some really great things, possessions, money, and I coveted them, and I took them, and I hid them in my tent. Do you remember what the penalty is? I mean, he confessed. He told what had happened after the fact. Do you remember what the penalty is? They take Achan out and they take all of those possessions and they take his wife and his family and all his servants. They take everybody connected to his household and they stone them. And they heap a great heap of stones upon their dead bodies. And you read that. You go, oh, I don't think I like that God. I mean, isn't that kind of not a big deal? I mean, of course he wasn't supposed to do it, but... Isn't that a little severe? What is God doing in the story of Achan? And I also believe here with Ananias and Sapphira, what is he doing? God is communicating to us the seriousness of sin. I am thankful that God doesn't. See, this is perspective for you. Some people will look at that and say, I can't believe God is such a monster. But, but when I see that, I say, I can't believe God is so gracious. I can't believe God is so merciful and long-suffering because he hasn't done that to all of us. He has given us an example to warn us, to caution us, to communicate to us. I take sin seriously. Avoid it. Obey me. Do not entangle yourself with sin. It's interesting that both in Achan's case and in Ananias and Sapphira, the sin is covetousness, isn't it? It's covetousness. It's, it's deception, hiding. Let's consider the layers here of Ananias and Sapphira's sin. They were not united in heart and soul with the full number. They were not united in heart and soul with God's people. Their lives had not been oriented around King Jesus and his kingdom. They were still divided in their loyalties and in their allegiances. They still cared and put a high premium on their money and possessions. They still cared a lot about their money and possessions. However, they also cared about their reputation and the way they are perceived. That's a hard place to be, isn't it? I care a lot about my money and my possessions and my stuff. We we could take this and flesh this out and and, and apply it to so many things. I, I care about my money and my possessions and my pleasure and my comfort and my sin. I care a lot about these things that I hold dear. But I also want people to think well of me. And in a church that is experiencing such spirit-created unity, where everybody isn't even considering what they have as their own, and they're just giving things away, that is really hard to live in the midst of. It's very uncomfortable when you're seeing this type of spirit-created unity take place. 
I really want people to think I'm on board. I really want people to think well of me. I really want people to praise me. I mean, look at, look at Joseph, Barnabas. Look, he even got a name from the apostles. I want that recognition. I want to be known. I want the people to think well of me, but I don't want to give away my possessions. Ananias and Sapphira are trapped. They're trapped. You see, they're trapped. Their, their divided desires and heart has trapped them. They want both. I want recognition and praise from men, but I also care a lot about my stuff. And they're trapped. What's the only course for them? What's the only thing they can do? I know. Sapphira, I know what we'll do. We'll sell that piece of property that we have and we'll take part of it. We'll, we'll, take, we'll take some of it. We'll take a good, decent amount of it and we'll give that to the apostles. We'll lay that at the apostles' feet so everybody will, everybody will know. <laughs> We're here with you. We're committed. But we'll, we'll keep, I mean, it's only reasonable. It's our land after all. We'll keep it. We'll keep part of the proceeds. And in doing this, They show that their love for money and their love for man's praise has led them to a disastrous, a disastrous course of action. Now they contrive to lie. And look at what the text says. Their lie, their lie has made them willing agents of Satan's opposition. They've become agents of the enemy of God. They have been, become agents of Satan's opposition. Again, I fear that we have churches filled with people who are doing the work of the enemy so often excusing it, making light of it, but doing God's enemy <laughs> And his work. Satan has filled, it says, their hearts. That's what Peter says. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Here we see that their sin is ultimately against God. And here's what that means, to lie to the Holy Spirit. Their lie... Their giving of the money, even though they are withholding and lying about what they're bringing, this lie is a counterfeit. It is a counterfeit of the Holy Spirit's work. The Holy Spirit is the one who has created this one heart and one soul. This pouring out of the Holy Spirit has made men and transformed them into being oriented around their own lives, being oriented around God and Christ. The Holy Spirit has done that. And in what they're doing, they're trying to deceive men, but ultimately they are counterfeiting the Holy Spirit's work. This happens so often in churches. And yes, God does not strike us dead 
And we are thankful for that. But don't think that he takes it any less lightly or more lightly. Listen, how often, how often do our hearts struggle, struggle with the requirements of ministry? Do you sense that in your own heart and life? I do. I do, often. But, but there's this pressure, isn't there? There's this pressure. You've got to serve. You've got to give. You know, this, this, this passage probably could be used to be applied to giving and tithing, and, and that's a right use of it or a right application of it. But how often is there this pressure? You've got to give. You've got to serve. You've got to do. And I'm telling you that I think from this passage... We can say, if you don't want to serve, don't serve. If you don't want to give, don't give. If you don't want to sacrifice, don't sacrifice. Don't fake it. Do you see the, 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 the seriousness of faking it? We don't want a church full of faking people. Pray for God to change your heart. Pray for God to give you an orientation around Him and His kingdom. You don't have to sing in front of people. You don't have to serve the communion or the ushers. You don't have to greet people on Sunday. You don't have to do any of those things. Nobody's expecting you to. And that's what Peter says to Ananias. He says, no one, no one was twisting your arm. While it remained unsold, wasn't it yours? Oh, but he loved the praise of people. He didn't want other people to get the credit and him be standing out like a sore thumb. Well, everybody's giving and everybody's serving and everybody's doing their thing at sacrifice to themselves. If I don't do something, people are going to see that I'm not committed. No, they needed a change of heart first. Now, again, I, I'm not saying, listen, sometimes, sometimes the feeling isn't there, right? Sometimes when we get up in the morning, we don't feel like serving. We don't feel like giving. And that's not what I'm talking about right? We, we, we do obey. Even when the feelings aren't there, we obey. We obey praying that God would then fuel us with, with that emotion and that experience and that feeling. We want that. What, what I'm saying is some of us, I, I think, are caught. We're caught. We want to be recognized. We want to be seen. We want to not stick out. <laughs> And yet our heart is still tied up with this earth. I read 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. They turned from worshiping idols to serving the living God and to wait for Jesus from heaven. The people that are waiting for Jesus from heaven they are not investing themselves in this earth and all that they can get out of this earth. Why? Because the one who I hope in, my hope, my life, he's coming. And this earth and this life, this has nothing for me. I'm hoping in him. How often we manufacture and counterfeit the Holy Spirit's work. 
True unity was produced by true conversion. The opposition to unity is a serious sin, so serious that it cost Ananias and Sapphira their life right there on the spot. Why is it so serious? We've already started hitting on that, but why is it so serious? Because our spirit-created unity is a proclamation, is a testimony to the God that we serve. And that God is a holy God. He is the true God. He is a holy God. Do you see the impact of Ananias and Sapphira's death upon the people there? Verse number five, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. Down to Sapphira, verse 10, immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. Well, what what happened in both cases? What happened in both cases? Look up again at verse five, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. Great fear. Go down to verse uh, number 10, verse 11 rather. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. God's judgment and God's dealing with Ananias and Sapphira created great fear in the whole church. Now, was this fear, was this being afraid? Well, no and yes, What was this fear? What was the character of this fear? This fear created in the whole church is not merely a fear of judgment, but it is a reverence and an awe for the God that they worship. It is an understanding of the God that we gather here every Sunday to exalt. See, this is why it's so serious. When we are dividing the church, when we are living in disunity, what are we doing? We are exalting self and our own goals and our own life. We are self-exalting. And that exaltation of self is a rival against God and His rightful place. We don't gather here for me. And we don't gather here for you. We don't gather here only for each other. There's a lot of places we could do that kind of work. We gather here to exalt the holy God. And any division or disunity in the church is a direct opposition of that God. And that must be taken seriously. You wonder... (laughs) What would lead, this is what Peter asks him, what would lead you to do this? What would lead you to do this? I think Ananias and Sapphira lacked an awareness of the God that they were serving. They lacked an awareness of the holiness of God. They lacked that fear of God. Isn't that truly what hypocrisy is? I haven't used that word once yet, but that is in essence what Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of. Hypocrisy. Wanting men to think one thing 
and yet secretly, secretly being something else. That is hypocrisy. So many times people will leave churches and they will say, I just don't want to go to church because it's all full of hypocrites. I hope that's not the case. People say that because they're hurting or because they're mad or whatever, but I hope, I hope that it's not the case here at Trinity Church that we are hypocrites publicly in service and in church being one thing and in our secret lives being something else. I hope that's not the case for us. If that is the case, what, what do you think is going on? Is the Holy Spirit, and this is what I wrote down, is the Holy Spirit real? Do, do you believe that God's presence, that God's Spirit is real and that He is here? Do you, do you believe that God's Spirit is real and that He's here? Is He real to you? Maybe in your mind He is real, He's real, but he's not overly concerned or maybe aware of your secret life. Maybe maybe God is here. Maybe he's real, but he's not aware or not concerned, overly concerned. Maybe to you he is real, and you know that he's aware. You've got good systematic theology. You know he's aware. He's omniscient. He's real, he's here, he's aware, but he's gracious. And he's going to overlook all of the hypocrisy. And he's going to understand, it's going to be okay. That's not, that's not the truth. That's not the truth. God hates hypocrisy. So much so that he killed a man and his wife on the spot to give us an example of how serious he takes hypocrisy. God's grace is real. Don't don't hear me say that grace isn't real. Grace is real. But what does grace do? What does the, the gift of God's grace do in our lives? Read scripture. What does it say? Grace, the grace that he gives us, leads us to godliness, leads us to holiness. It is this conversion, true conversion grace that transforms our lives. And we go from being worshiping, worshipers of idols, a life oriented around self, to being transformed, oriented around him and his worth and his praise. That is what grace does. My prayer this morning for us is that we would respond by examining our own lives. When were you converted? When was your life taken from being all about you to being all about Jesus? When did you count the cost and realize that dying to self was nothing? My life ending and his life remaining. Listen, we, we preach a gospel, I think, often in churches that is so cheap in its grace. Just make a decision. Once saved, always saved. Listen, that, listen. <laughs> once saved, always saved, absolutely. But salvation actually works. Salvation works. And if you say it doesn't, then you're opposing the work of grace. What does grace do? Grace takes you from being an idol worshiper and makes you a worshiper of the living God.
That's what grace does. And that has effects of your, on your life, right? We begin working against our sin, not with our sin. We love others and seek to love others and grow in our love for others and grow in our, our sacrifice for others and our service for others. That's what true conversion does in our lives. And I fear that churches are full of people that are trapped. They're trapped because they want to see the fruits of the Holy Spirit taking place in their life, but, but they, know, they know that they actually haven't reoriented their life around Jesus. They, they're trying to live both sides and they're trapped. Turn from your sin. Repent. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Die to self. Your life cease and his life remains. And all of you, I, I, just, I just challenge you, look at your own spirit and life. Are you opposing by your disunity, by your division, by your self-centeredness, by your self-absorption? Are you opposing the work of God, both in your own life, in your own family, and in this church? We want to be a church experiencing true spirit-created unity that can only be accomplished by the work of God. We want to see that take place in our lives, in our homes, and in our church. Father, we thank you for this word, this passage this morning. I pray that you would take all that has been said, Lord, and by your Holy Spirit, by your work, minister to our hearts individually with everything from your word and from your text this morning. I pray that you would apply where, where truth needs to be applied, that you would comfort where comfort is needed, that you would convict where conviction is needed, that you would, you would expose in, in men and women's lives where exposure is needed. And I pray that we would rejoice together in fear of you, true fear, fear that really is motivated by love, by adoration, by thankfulness, fear that holds you as holy, that reverences you as God, God alone, and that sees the earth and the possessions of this earth and the money of this earth as nothing in comparison to you. I pray that you would work this in our lives and hearts even this morning as we prepare to take the supper that you have given us to take on a regular basis to remind us of who we are and what Christ has done and the unity that we have in Christ. We pray this in your name. Amen.